again, Bitcoin's paradoxical like this, right? It's nobody controls Bitcoin, exactly. but everybody controls Bitcoin sort of thing. And it's um, just that idea of having, well, what's the ideal in the West, right? That we're all equal in the eyes of the law, right? That's the ideal, at least. There's no, there's no two-tier system, like rules for me, not for thee, although we do have that. <laughs> the ideal was not to have that and with bitcoin it seems like we actually have something that is more true to that ideal that we are all equal in the eyes of bitcoin hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C dot com. So jumping back in to chapter one here, I thought I would just read an excerpt to give the audience a little bit of an idea of the writing, which is really good. And then also, I think this is a great introduction um, to the importance of prices, like how essential they are to the capitalism and the accumulation of capital, all the things we've talked about. Obviously, prices are expressed in money, typically. So it's um, very fundamental to all the things that we talked about at the, the top of the show here. So you guys wrote, and again, this is a paragraph four, beginning of chapter one, quote, that the power of prices is the process of dynamic discovery that underpins their emergence not the fleeting consensus of a specific moment in time. The price is never right, but prices 
are as right as can be hoped for at that moment. Attempts to coerce prices without the ability to change the reality they communicate are, therefore, bound to run into trouble. And yet we do not seem capable to accept the truth of prices whenever it is inconvenient. To ensure that consensus can arrive at valid social truths, we require systems or institutions that withstand attempts at coercion and which tap into decentralized discovery, unquote. So I'm reminded here of the saying, I've I've heard a lot of Wall Street guys say this, right? The price is truth um, and price discovery is perhaps the most essential thing that a marketplace does. Um, And again, back to your essay that we mentioned earlier, Capital in the 21st Century, you're making a strong argument that Bitcoin kind of fixes price discovery um, for capital, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, So given how essential pricing is and a pricing system is to the coordination of a capitalistic system, um, yet it's it's abstract, so it's kind of difficult to get people to realize the importance of this. How do you approach the idea of pricing and prices and their importance and significance to uh, an economic system that maximizes capital accumulation? Hmm. I'm struggling to come up with a a simple answer to this. It, it might be something we need to pick apart over over quite a while. M- maybe to start with, just something as simple as the price that emerges on a market that has not been tampered with or coerced. Let's say where everybody contributing is doing so willingly mm-hmm. is almost by definition going to be the most accurate reflection of what people really want. And when I say by definition, I that's a bit tricky because it sounds like that's somehow logically correct, which I don't think is quite right. I do think you need some understanding of the the sort of social mechanics at play. But I think you, you could equally, you could tease it out a little bit logically just by thinking, well, what would happen if, if you take that price as a starting point, how could you possibly improve it? You know, you take that price, you assume it's wrong, like forget doesn't matter why you think that, but you're convinced that it's wrong. I think you basically have two options. It depends what kind of approach you're, you're willing to even attempt. If you're willing to be coercive, then you have to force one or some of the participants to behave in a way that they don't want to. Because if, if they wanted to behave that way, they would have behaved that way in the first place. And so what is being fed into the into the market is is by definition not you know the best reflection of what everybody wants or if you don't want to be coercive you want to i mean you have a more voluntarist approach i guess you could contribute to the market yourself Mm -hmm. but that changes the original problem because 
in the in the first setup you weren't part of it or if you were you, you again in order for this to make any sense you have to be um you have to be changing whatever your contribution was in order to change the price but the only way to sensibly interpret that is that you are changing what you want as well so again the market would take account of that it probably wouldn't change to whatever it is you want it to be but that's because you're only one of many contributors so and the, the point is to to almost i don't i don't quite want to say the word aggregate but to arrive at the best reflection of what it is everybody collectively wants you know, what is the optimal outcome from the way everybody has proven by their actions they are willing to behave so i think hopefully that's a good starting point in terms of arriving at to refer back to that quote actually uh some kind of decentralized social truth that's what the price is that that's what a an untampered with price is it's a a decentrally no, de, i don't know what the adverb is there sourced via decentralization social truth yeah it's it's comp it's very complicated um i i, I I was going to say, I think one, one element to tease out maybe is the way the relationship that you have to price and the approach that you're taking to price. So if you are coming into the marketplace and you're using the price as an indicator or to essentially guide your decisions for something that you want, either you're, you're thinking of purchasing A or B and you're going to use the price to direct you on which, which of the two you should be buying. Here you're using price, just uh, the price that has been discovered to then feed into your own personal, your subjective preference. And you're adding that to the mix. You're just saying, Hey, okay, I've got, I've got alternatives here. I'm going to therefore go for that. And it's going to add that to everything that's already been fed into the price versus and so the price really is just something that you take and then you express your opinion versus imagine someone coming to the marketplace and the price is the thing that they care about where they say that's not right i want the price to be lower or i want the price to be higher you're not really taking that price you're setting the price at that point and the only way to set the price is to interfere with what everyone before has expressed as their honest, subjective view on what they would rather have or things like that. So whenever you're coming to a market as a price taker, you're adding and you're not forcing anyone else to do anything else. Whenever you're coming to the, to the market as a price setter, you are going to, in a, well, as a second order impact, uh, affect what everybody else has been expressing because you're now messing up with, with, with that whole discovery that's happened before. You're kind of stepping on everyone's subjective experience of reality and saying that you're, either your subjective experience is superior or you have a goal that supersedes what everybody is thinking about. Hmm. And there's, there's an obvious link there, again, to intellectual humility. I, I expect that will come up yeah. over and over again maybe even to experimentation as well, because in some sense you're saying, I don't like the actual result of this experiment. I'm gonna pretend we haven't learned this and insist we've learned something else instead. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, that's that's good, good stuff there. And I, as you were talking about the, you know, price taking, you're basically accepting the subjective valuations people have assigned to whatever the thing is that's you know all of their ordinal valuations have crystallized into this cardinal price and like so it's it's an appraisal of social value the social value attached to the thing in that moment versus if you're trying to if you're saying oh that's not right it should be this then it's the the former is you're accepting people's free choice and free will and that's what the price is and the the latter is no i know better than yeah. everyone and so it should and be look, this one way you could do it that's one way you can do that that's not um uh, perverse would be arbitrage where you're actually preempting what people will think or invest where you say hey i'm going to buy the shares in this company because i believe that eventually people will come to realize something right. So what you're doing is you are helping in the price discovery because you're adding information. So that's so it, it, if you if you think price should move in a certain direction, you're not necessarily mm -hmm. doing anything bad. But it's when when you're actively saying no 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 we will move the price and you do it yeah. like you're actually either interfering. Uh, so we can think of uh, market manipulation, which is which is banned, right? But when the government does it with money, it's not banned. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. it has to be this way. You understand? There is no other. How else could we possibly? <laughs> Anyways, so that's that's that. And then we, we so it's it's differentiating mm -hmm. between the two, right? I, I thought of something else interesting too, which I think Robert, your your audience, sort a decent portion of your audience will appreciate this distinction um, between the the Mises approach to the economic calculation problem and the Hayek approach. So most of what we've said so far, I think is more the Mises approach. It's that, which I think in some sense is kind of fundamentally prior is that you can't possibly um, weigh up the subjective values properly. I, that's completely butchering it, but to get it down to one sentence. Um, whereas the Hayek approach is more around information. And I think it's, it's weaker in a set. I mean, we don't need to get into a debate about you know, the particulars of Austrian economics, but, um, but it, it does present the, the problem slightly differently. It gives you a different lens to, to view this with, which would be something like, again, to pick up the, the terminology we've developed so far, it would be like, you're coming to the, the market, you see the price, um, you can't possibly know what went into creating that price. And yet, for you to suggest any other price, you are necessarily, you know, even if you don't say it explicitly, you, it can't fail to be the case that you think you know. You know, you think you know more than everyone else combined and that somehow they're all wrong, not only about reality, but about their own perceptions of reality. You know better than all of them, uh, which is also, again, not intellectually humble, uh, not respecting the experiment and, and so on and so forth. Right. It, although it is possible, right? You have some insider knowledge or some tip that hasn't entered the marketplace and you might actually know or not know, be able to accurately hypothesize that the thing was undervalued or overvalued and then play that right through arbitrage, you know, short yeah. it long it whatever it may be but then you're actually feeding the process of price discovery now you, the knowledge that you have the asymmetric knowledge you have 
now enters the marketplace through your buying or selling action, basically. Um, I was thinking too how it's sort of like, and maybe this is a stretched analogy, but speech itself, you know, words that we exchange when we converse, there's a social consensus attached to the meaning of each word, which allows us to communicate. We have to kind of accept those definitions as is. We don't write them ourselves. I mean, maybe at the edges, you know, with these neologisms and things like that, but the basic, most of the words we use, I didn't make the definition for it. You guys didn't make it. Like we accepted it from culture, whatever. But, um, you know, there are certain statist or aspiring totalitarians or whatever that may actually try to force the definition of a word rather than accept it and say, you know, you can't use this word or this is what this word has to mean. So there's, there's, I guess there's a way to participate in price discovery that is not, it's not coercive when you think the price is wrong, you could just make the play. But then there's also this other thing where like, I, I saw a headline recently, Janet Yellen, we will do whatever it takes to keep oil at $60 a barrel or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's like they're interfering with price discovery, right? Through market yeah. manipulation, through the legal monopoly of the central bank, all of these things to actually distort price discovery. Yeah. I think I, there's there's a really fundamental point you're getting at here, which again, I think is, uh, or at least we've attempted to make it a central thread of a lot of different topics that we talk about, which is that in these, uh, you can say, markets but i think it's fine to generalize it beyond that you know complex systems of of socially interacting humans whatever um where you or were you finding a point yeah yeah exactly you're going to talk about that yeah yeah where um there needs to be a happy medium of legitimate social interaction so on the one hand there's no such thing as a market of one person Right? There's no social interaction between one person and themselves. Uh, that's on one end of the spectrum. Um, that doesn't mean, obviously, that we're advocating for, for you know, statism or violence or whatever, because the other end of the spectrum is that there's also, there's not in any really meaningful sense a market or a social interaction if everybody involved in the market or the interaction is being forced to, to take part in that way. That's also, it might superficially seem like it's there but i I think we we would argue probably most people would accept that it's just as fake as a market of one person and an interaction of one person so there has to be a medium where there are people who disagree because otherwise they would all do the same thing again you you actually also it's interesting thought it's not at all realistic but it's an interesting thought experiment of a market where everybody thinks exactly the same thing what would happen well Mm -hmm. nothing Mm-hmm. Um, you need people who disagree, but who are willing to be peaceful in their disagreement. Mm-hmm. And and this comes up in all kinds of different realms. Is that yeah? You, did you you find a quote from what chapter eight or something that you wanted to get to? Uh, it's not yeah. It's not really a quote. It's just the, the part of chapter eight. It's a subsection called personal sacrifice and interpersonal compromise. This is mm-hmm. the idea that in order to have communication in the first place, we need to agree on common symbols. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, maybe try and find the, the, the that's, it's definitely, well, okay. You're I, I'm something finding something else. else, you're something else. <laughs> there, there's, there, there's gotta be a few quotes in there, but it's back to that point of symbolism that we need to share 
And therefore, I need to make a compromise by accepting the definition that you're that is out there. And you need to make that compromise as well, both of us, to understand that this is what this means. Because otherwise, you say something, I say something, and right. we're both living in our own world where we're completely free and also completely alienated from each other because we have yes. no way of communicating. Right. And so it's important that we we find things that we can agree to or that we can voluntarily compromise on. And so we're actively opting into a set of rules. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this is the opt-in. That's the clause, right? That's the important part is that we're accepting to, to take these things mm-hmm. on rather than have a 100% freedom because we understand the value of having these common symbols and, and yes. all these things. We can, we can then extend that to laws or a yes generally accepted behaviors or right. things that we agree needs to happen preconditions to having a, a society to having a culture and all these things right and that that we build and we then use to communicate and to collaborate and then to create and all these things that we've been that we've been yeah. talking there's there's generalized agreement on like the meaning of words or the meaning yeah. of prices or the yeah. rule of law or whatever it may yeah. be. But that generalized agreement serves our ability to have civilized disagreement. Yeah. Instead of killing each other over a dispute, yeah. we can actually yeah. arbitrate, go to law, go to court, etc. And we should all agree on those things. And that's if you go back to the founding of the US, for example, the federal system is the idea that you can be in a different state because you can you can withdraw from whatever regime you're under. So mm-hmm. you'll have the constitution, which is this basically should be the base, the, the just the stuff that we should all agree on. Mm-hmm. That's the constitution, right? Okay, mm-hmm. we all agree on these things. Fine. We can't really withdraw from that. Hopefully we all agree that that's fine. And then within the within the country, we'll have different regimes that you can choose to opt in or out of. And mm-hmm. hopefully you find the one that suits you. And if anyone is too um, is just not in accord with what people want, people will just move out of that right. environment. And yeah, the worst the worst case of it is, of course, people fleeing communist countries because they don't want to live there. Right. And that's the end result of having such an oppress- oppressive regime that millions of people are fleeing. And you need to build a wall to keep people in. Right, right, right. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney.
Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Robert, can I just, before we move on, um, because you, you mentioned language a couple of times and Sasha picked up on it, I wanted to find this excerpt. Uh, this is one of the more pretentious passages, if I'm completely honest. Guess but who I'm, wrote that? I'm, I'm, who... <laughs> it's, from, it's from chapter four. Uh, well, it came out of our discussion, if it's you true. remember correctly. Um, it's from chapter four, Wittgenstein's uh, money, but it's, it's picking up on exactly this comparison mm. uh, mm. between... Uh, you know, language as a, a similar social system. So I'm not going to read all like two pages. I'll just, I've, while Sasha was speaking, I decided which bits I wanted to, to read. Um, okay, so if economic activity is a language, trade a speech act and prices the compressed signal of syntax, then entrepreneurship bears a remarkable resemblance to authorship. Great works of literature must strike a similarly delicate balance. They must not be so traditional as to be dull, yet not so novel as to be jarring. They must be traditional enough to be intelligible, yet novel enough to present a challenge. They accept the literary form, then they stress its conventions. And then jumping ahead just a little bit. Um, alternatively, uh, Ludwig von Mises' socialist calculation problem applies also to literary analysis. There can be no socialist overlord of literature capable of unilaterally determining what a given text means. And it is not even that they should not, but that the proposition itself is philosophically incoherent. To propose it is to misunderstand the nature of subjective value. An official price set by a socialist and an official interpretation set by a literature czar are the same kind of arrogant, incoherent truth. It is a proclamation of the shared content of everybody else's minds. It doesn't matter what it says, it is wrong. Wow, that's excellent. That yeah, is though, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, but that's also why written, <laughs> that's why the written form is just you can just craft it, right? Whenever you're talking, it's just on the spot. You're just putting yeah. ideas together and you're hoping that you say something that's coherent that's yeah. that's gonna sound good. But when you write, you can just go over that <laughs> yes. as many times as you need to. And it's forcing you to think at a much deeper level. I personally find mm -hmm. yes, because I often, sure. when I start writing, I only realize that I was wrong or that I didn't quite understand the ramifications of some of the ideas I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Whilst I'm through writing, I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, actually, you know, that doesn't work, or I need to emphasize this and this and that. Yeah, that's like, but that's because really... you put it there, like reading. I'm like, oh, it's not so good. It's like. <laughs> 100x yeah. better than everything we've been speaking. <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i don't want to go too much of a tangent with this but this is kind of interesting in terms of what, what we mentioned in the introduction about how we wrote the book right that mm. originally we wrote you know we didn't say i'd write a book we said i'd write the essays the essays came from the discussion but actually there was a part in between where we we wrote the essays 
to figure out what we meant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. It, it, I would say the uh, talking or the oral form is a flow. <laughs> 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 and this is the stock. That right? makes sense. Yeah. This is hours of conversation yeah. that yeah. you then condense and clarify into something that's as pure as it can be, which is why when you read from this, you're like, oh, wow, actually, they, they, they are quite smart. It's almost an expect like that. <laughs> So yeah, no, I love I love this uh, tying it back together. But the um, so writing and price discovery. I mean, th there's this process of iterative distillation, right? Like you, you write it down and then you read it and reflect upon it, and you're like, oh, well, this isn't quite right, or I need to add something here, remove something here, expand on this, etc. And then you write it again and you repeat, right? And obviously, this is the editing process. You know, Jordan Peterson often says writing is thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the better you can write, the better you can think because you're actually writing is the most uh, rigorous form of thinking. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, and th so this is interesting, though, because all right, when I think about prices, also from Mises, he says that prices are exchange ratios, right? So yeah. instead of this car costs 32 chairs and this house costs 14 cars, you know, all these different countless exchange ratios. We just compress it all into money and say this thing costs that many dollars, so on and so forth. It's almost like the, the process you're describing where you're able to compare, like I wrote this and then I can reflect on it. You're taking like a ratio of whatever you wrote or whatever you thought and comparing it to what it should be. And it's, it's enabling human rationality through this iter iterative process. Yeah. And prices are kind of doing that in the material world. If they're, they're taking exchange ratios and constantly, oh no, this house isn't 14 shares, it's 15 shares. You know, obviously it's just the dollar sure. price changing, but it's, there's all this relative valuation that's constantly flowing. And then it's just coming out through prices. So it's almost like, a way of extending human rationality into the material domain somehow, or at least seeing what, seeing how yeah. other people see the world, right? You're looking at yeah. the world through the eyes of other people, which is the, the marketplace. Yeah. No, I, I really like that framing because I think probably a, a super common mistake, if, if not by far the most common of people approaching economics uh, without sufficient rigor, you know, maybe just like the layman, thinking about a problem yeah. not even in an academic context is the idea that there is something objective about the price if they if they get a bit more formal with it they might say something like that value itself is objective mm -hmm. uh, but exactly the way you just phrased it robert that if you're if your conception of a of a price but you know the market from which it emerges is really anything other than accepting the subjective inputs of all the different participants then you're you're definitely off on the wrong track it almost doesn't matter what you're you know what track you go down if it's not that one you're right. in trouble right yeah no it's, it's really interesting because again prices are like an appraisal of value it's not a measurement of value which is often People commonly say that money money measures value. It's like, well, not technically, because 
val- the process evaluation is ordinal. You can't measure it like you can measure a table. Um, but it but the pricing the price itself is a cardinal number, right? It's thirteen dollars or it's fourteen dollars or whatever it may be. So this pricing price discovery process is somehow converting ordinal valuation into a cardinal price. It's taking something that's subjective, which is valuation, and giving us something objective, which is the market price. And so this strange price discovery process is somewhere between well, I think, objective I think you, and objective. What, what were you going to say? I was, <laughs> was going to say the objective part is that if you are going, it's, it's, it's the exchange ratio between two physical things or two things that are real. Right. You can have you can have fourteen chairs, or you can have one sofa, or something like that. Right. Like that is real. That is objective at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. If you were to go in the marketplace, what's completely subjective is which one do you, would you rather have? Would you rather have <laughs> one sofa or fourteen chairs? Right. Like that, yeah, that's like that, yeah. that's 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 the part that's completely subjective. So it's objective. Prices are objective in the sense that they reflect the well. It's not all the information, but they're reflecting the 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 agri. Ag- well, I'm using I'm using <laughs> words I don't want to use. Yeah, because, yeah, no, it's it, hard because it's it's driving it's driving us towards like neoclassical economics. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, it's it's re- representing a truth about how much stuff we have and how mm-hmm. much of one thing you can have versus another. But it's not telling you anything about how valuable those things are to you. Like that's right. the, that, that's the part. Yeah. I'm yeah. just repeating what I said 30 seconds ago. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I was going to make a different point, which doesn't, um, it's not a contradiction at all. I think it's just a different kind of way of viewing this, which is that the, it's, it's again, just deliberately almost going out my way to tie in uh, time and mm-hmm. uh, social coordination in particular, where there's disagreement because this is a, a nicely different way of viewing exactly what Sasha said about you know what you can't say which is more valuable you know you can only say that that these people valued one more than the other and, and right. the trade happened right yeah. um so the the point I was going to make was that the only the only thing that's objective about the price or the only way that you can say that the price is objective is that the trade happened mm-hmm. like right. that that is that is true in a way that uh it is somehow physical i think it's fair to say it goes beyond what anybody thinks about what right. happened it, it did actually happen it's in the time chain kind of thing yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah but the 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 difference is you got to be clear whether you're talking about what caused it to happen which is the subjective valuations and the mm. the motives of the acting disagreeing humans yeah. mm-hmm. versus you know just the fact that it happened these are completely almost in different domains of analysis in some mm-hmm. sense yeah price i, I was gonna say price is what you paid value is what you got <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. and if we go back to the accounting analogy price is the book value it's mm-hmm. what ha- it's essentially what has been paid in the past and has been mm-hmm. accumulated yeah. on your balance sheet is now the mm-hmm. book value versus the value, the real value, the market fair market value. Again, differences. Right. Yeah. That's how you reconcile that. No, that's super interesting. And I, 
it gets strange here for me because um I'm just going to throw a bunch of things out here. So obviously value is subjective, but we get the price out of, we compress all of our valuations together. We get the market price, which is objective, right? There, there is right. a price out there. There's some last trade that two people made. It That's is. what the thing is currently priced at. But then price discovery, that process that's feeding back between the two. Um, I had a guy on the show named John Bravaki, and he has this term, transjective that there are actually things that exist between that aren't subjective or objective the example he likes to give is adaptivity right like is uh the, the great white shark that's adapted to the ocean like is is that objectively is the adaptivity in the shark or is it in the ocean or is it between them you know it's like they're kind of uh, reciprocally reconstructed or co-conformed through some discovery process. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, so there, and then there's this argument and this is in a uh, economic science and the Austrian method by Hoppe. And he says something to the effect that, and I might be misstating his argument here slightly. This is my interpretation that subject object duality was like a subcategory of human action in a way that only through human action does mind and matter actually meet and so we we decompose things into this is subjective this is objective but that's really just kind of a tool in itself that categorization that the reality is there's a continuum taking place between these two things so it's almost like transjectivity to use Ravaki's term right. is the reality of human action like it's just all of the we live in this continuum of all these things touching and interacting all the time. And then we'll like look into the past and say, okay, well that one thing is objective, but it arose from all these subjective valuations. Cause we can't, again, intellectual humility, you can't look inside someone's head and deterministically say yeah. what you're going to do in any situation. So it just, it's just strange. Like I feel like price discovery is somehow like a metaphor, like a structural metaphor for the way, the world works you know like if darwinian natural selection is this very powerful theory well price discovery is something we use to constantly adapt to our social <laughs> realities our technological realities you know yeah. the realities of supply and demand etc and so um yeah anyways I don't, that's not really a super coherent thought i'm very, very much at the edge of my own thinking here but um it definitely exhibits these strange qualities that make me question the nature of subject object duality itself. I think the, the cleanest way to interpret that distinction, or at least that's come to me in the time that you've been talking, Robert is, is to focus on, I guess you could call it epistemology. Um, but, but to, to think about that, you know, the situation you're analyzing and, break it down into discrete areas that you are in which you are capable of knowing different things mm -hmm. that that to me i think is the the easiest way of <laughs> i guess in some sense like avoiding metaphysical confusion so what i mean by that maybe more applied in this context you can i i think i said before something like you know the the fact of the trade happening is physical mm -hmm. and I was a little fluffy in how I meant that at the time, but maybe it's a bit more obvious now that, you know, you, you can 
observe this as a physical event in the way that you would observe any physical mm -hmm. event. And in some sense, it's in the realm of, of physics, essentially. Not that the measurements are at all interesting or the relationships are interesting, but the way you know it is the way you would know anything physical. Mm -hmm. Whereas you, the, the same claims you're making about subjective value have no physical component. So it's, it's clearly not in that domain and you need some other uh, intellectual toolkit to investigate it. Mm. Culture. Mm. The, the other thing I would say is uh, back to that discussion we're having about manipulating prices. I think the approach or the mindset one might have when they are manipulating is thinking that the price is quite subjective mm. <laughs> yeah mm. rather than mm -hmm. it is just true that mm. this is how much oil there is in the or how much oil is being produced and this is the current demand and therefore this is the clearing price mm -hmm. and you say no, well i would rather it be lower mm -hmm. <laughs> or, right. or no, actually i want to make a few more bucks so please let's let's jack this up a bit but so so it's you, you need to just accept the the up the the fact that it is real, um, yes. but then you come to it with your own subjective. Mm. It's almost like value. rewriting history in a way, right? If you're saying, I don't like the price of oil, I'd rather it be this. You're, yeah. again, you're trying yeah, to. Well, I mean, out. you're rewriting the history of the present. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And then again, um, not to belabor this too much, but I just feel like I'm in good company to have these weird. <laughs> philosophical meanderings um you know descartes right i think therefore i am uh, descartes descartes yeah. right okay um that's kind of what gave us this schism right that there's well there's the thinking subjective me and then there's the objective world outside of the thinking me but that distinction isn't too clear for me either like the actual the mind matter split you gave the example earlier of writing, you know, like we can think and talk in a certain way with our, you know, face holes right now, yes. but we can think in a totally different way if we use a tool like a pen, right? We actually sit down and write and reflect and rewrite. Like there's a whole different mode of thinking, a more rigorous form of thinking, I think you said. And so there's some strange um, relationship with you know, the material reality that's objectively out there can somehow influence the subjective experience that I'm having in here. And okay. so, um, uh, th there's a, there's a whole theory around this. I think it's called material engagement theory. And it's basically trying to say, where is the mind? Where is the mind? Is the mind purely a brain bound phenomenon or is it, can we extend our mind into other objects? And the, the example they like to use is the blind man's stick. You know, does the blind man's mind stop at his hand where he feels things or is it the tip of the stick? Like where he's almost like extended his mind or his perceptual apparatus through a tool, right? Through this stick in the same way that we can extend our mind through the uh, a pen, for instance, and form different thoughts. So um, it. I don't know. It's just a weird because we take subject object for granted. Like it is some fundamental thing in the universe, but I, I feel like it might be kind of just another one of these categories that we use that's useful for dealing with uh, yeah. the, the world continuum that we all inhabit.
Well, you're getting into you're getting into quite the deep metaphysical questions here. Yes. I was gonna say I don't feel particularly qualified to especially off that I'm gonna make one comment and then I'm just gonna move on. But if you think of the um like the brain in a vat, um um what you call it, the thought experiment, thought experiment like the Boltzmann mm-hmm. Boltzmann brain is it, yeah. Uh they Technically, you don't know if anything is objective because you can't validate anything beyond your subjective experience, right? Mm-hmm. You just take things are so it's it would be so unreasonable to think they're they're subjective that you just assume they're objective, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't function. Yeah. And then that, that's that that's all that's as far as my thinking has gone on that point and i'm happy using that as an assumption to just go about my day when i buy a sandwich <laughs> yeah i i thought it's something interesting just um, just while both of you were talking and uh, i may regret this because it's, it's very much off the cuff but um I, i'm trying to think how to even articulate this properly that i think what what one very interesting uh tenet let's say of uh, Austrian economics, which uh, we've spoken a fair bit about on this call, you know, we cite it a lot in the book. I, I think it's worth stressing that this isn't, you know, a book about, it's not even really about economics, but it's certainly not an Austrian book. Mm-hmm. There's a an end note at some point which actually lists all the different influences we have because there's quite a lot beyond Austrianism, but uh, Austrianism is probably the, the most powerful, but nonetheless, a, a, a key tenet is the focus on human action, right? And so I think we've all at some point in this conversation gone our, our way to use that phrase because of how how powerful it is. And so the, the amusing thought I had just while both of you were talking there is that I think in terms of how to approach um, mind-body dualism, um, <laughs> if you're really forcing yourself to apply it to uh, economics, actually the focus on human action in Austrianism is a very healthy way to, I guess you'd necessarily be putting forward like a, a monistic view, but to, to see the uh, overlap, I guess, instantiated in, in, you know, the, the, the topic that you're analyzing in, in that, there's no such relevant thing as some intention you have that you Mm. don't act on. Mm. And equally, there's no such relevant thing as some physical circumstance on which nobody acts, Mm -hmm. right? What what the, the, the subject matter of economics is where these two intersect. It's where you have an intention that there's something you can have a whole other metaphysical baggage here if you really want to, but you have an intention that, uh, moves you so much you do act on it mm-hmm. and then what you're investigating is how that that action interacts with others yes and so yeah maybe there's some interesting metaphysics there i don't know no no, no, no that's really good i and um i think about this a lot when i'm thinking about the term value you know we, we talk about mm-hmm. value as if it's Oh, this is valuable. That's not valuable. This stock is undervalued, overvalued. But the reality, I think, is that all action is an expression of value. There's like there is no value separate from action, right? Like that's that's it. And so, kind of like what you're saying about the intention, 
it doesn't matter what I profess to believe or intend or say or whatever. It's like, what did I do? Like that's yeah, the only yeah. thing. I, I remember actually, Robert, what you said this to me once in real life, and this will send us down a, a hilarious tangent. Um, you you once said to me uh, that you don't believe in belief. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which that... I, I don't know if that has anything to do with economics. But we can explore that a bit too. <laughs> like. I, I think I agree with you. I I obviously it's kind of cryptic for the point of you know being funny and and provocative and. And, and making you think but uh given what we were talking about at the time i i think i agree and I, I think I, it applies here too yeah it's i i was getting to a similar point with that um yeah provocative comment it's obviously the words get a little tricky here but um again when we talk about money like as a store of value you know things like it's like it's not actually <laughs> store there's nothing there's nothing there that it's storing you know you're it's almost like you're speculating that other people will find this thing valuable into the future based on <laughs> the properties or attributes that it has yeah. would be the yeah. full description of it. Um, I do remember that conversation too, because I think you came up with what I hope is your next book title, which was, uh, I hope I say this correctly, yeah. Satan, the original shit coiner, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, maybe I get around to that after uh, Bitcoin is Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. <laughs> what was that related to the, the CSD? No, 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 it was, um, well, I mean, we, we probably could have linked it to Dostoevsky pretty easily, but Every, everything can be linked <laughs> to Dostoevsky. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, I more remember the kind of the vibe of the conversation rather than exactly what we were talking about i don't remember where exactly that line came from i think i came in late to the conversation and i think jordan bush was in the conversation yeah yeah you we know, talking about whatever the theological debate of money and... yeah no it's coming back to me now i do remember yeah it, it was about i, I mean th this will this will not do it justice but um tempting you into short-termism was the yeah. was what we were talking about but in a in a purely uh you know religious yeah, uh, yeah. metaphysical context and then but you know we were all bitcoiners it was that yeah, context. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, i yeah. could myself now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor crowd health crowd health is a bitcoin enabled alternative to legacy health insurance now let's face it Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. 
Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. So that might be a good, somewhat of a good segue into the last thing I want to talk about just in regards to prices. Because you, you guys also make this point in the excerpt that we read. Attempts to coerce prices without the ability to change the reality they communicate are, therefore, bound to run into trouble. And yet we do not seem capable to accept the truth of prices whenever it is inconvenient. So coercion is destructive to price discovery somehow in a very fundamental way, right? And if I don't know if price discovery is like this uh, extension of human rationality into the material domain that it's, um, what do we say? When we say when we, say, uh, we destroy or distort price discovery, it causes capital misallocation. Well, what does that mean? Misallocating from what? And it's something like the the collective plans and preferences of individuals acting in the marketplace, right? That all of a sudden capital's not going in accordance with their plans and preferences. Mm-hmm. It's going in accordance with some coercive uh I guess you could say it's still the plan and preference of individuals. It's just plans and preferences of individuals that are harming others rather than producing something like that yeah i i like to just say it's a lie i don't think it needs to be much more complicated than that you know referring back to uh how, how we we started off describing the price as being the the reflection of the you know the social truth arrived at by decentralized experimentation and mm-hmm. that whole discussion around how you couldn't if you think it through logically, you couldn't really improve on it except by contributing yourself. Right. So I think the link from that to then the capital allocation or misallocation that follows is that if you coercively distort the prices, people who are looking at those prices as a guide to their own decision-making will just be responding to things that aren't true anymore, but, but that they don't know aren't true because obviously your assumption is always going to be that it's true because mm-hmm. you have no reason to suspect otherwise really. Or I guess even if you did, well, what are you going to correct it to? You have to assume that the price is reflecting this deeper truth. Mm-hmm. And so the, that's why we call it misallocation because it's it's then building this, uh, whichever you know definition or metaphor you, you like the most, the, the store of economic potential energy. Mm-hmm. But which is which has been constructed to satisfy wants and valuations that never existed in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just a lie. It's just you know you're assuming it's a truth, but it's actually a lie. Which gets back to price is truth. So mm-hmm. price distortion is a lie, right? Like, it, um... or is the omission of truth, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it's ignoring some truths. It's mm-hmm. I'm not gonna take into account what these people have expressed, <clears throat> sorry, what these people have expressed. And 
So you could, so yeah, is it a lie? So it could be, I don't, I think that I know better what Alan needs. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to be making these decisions mm -hmm. from now on. So I'm I'm not necessarily lying because I honestly believe I know better than mm -hmm. he does. I'm just ignoring his preference set. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one way to know what it is. Or the it's other one misinformation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is fundamentally a lie though, because you can, <laughs> how could you ever know like I know I know what you prefer more than you know what you prefer, right? Yeah. Like almost that's I'm, like self thing in a way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but I think that that ties it up nicely. Um, is there anything else I wanted to say about prices? Like, I don't know. It's almost uh, the speech analogy comes back to me here where it's like the price is how we're defining the relevance of that commodity in the marketplace, right? This is how much time, effort, energy this thing is worth. And if you start to distort that, then it's like distorting a definition or something like it's breaking a social consensus <laughs> in a way that misallocates capital causes confusion, um, hurts someone gets hurt in the process, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's wants are not being satisfied yeah. as a result. I just, this is just come to me right now, actually. I, it's similar to, I mentioned this before, I may regret this because I haven't thought it through, but if you're, if you're really pushing the analogy to language, you can maybe think of capital misallocation as being something like uh, changing the definitions in the dictionary oh, yeah. and then, but then giving an author a dictionary, <laughs> be like, go <laughs> write something. Mm. And then they'll write something that's just meaningless or probably not complete gibberish, but every now and then it just won't make sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people will wonder why it's because they've been fed this social lie. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to think it's a slightly different route. People have written things and after it's been written, you just change the definition of some words. Oh, yeah, so maybe, when you yeah. read what's been written, you're like, yeah, well, you mm -hmm. said this. That's I don't, I don't think that works quite as well because I'm trying to, I'm forcing the link from the, the entrepreneur to the author. So it's like the author is, the, the the author is creating something because they expect the audience to take it one way, mm. but only because the because the author has been lied to. Mm. I don't know if it worked. I think it worked. But yeah, <laughs> that's or, why we will need to write it down. I'll forget. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And more more writing, more reflection. But there's definitely this. We could at least say that when you start distorting or breaking these elements of social consensus whether they be words or prices you create confusion of some mm -hmm. kind yeah, yeah. right and you you create from that confusion comes problems and uh, dissatisfaction i guess you might say as opposed to satisfaction with you know price discovery being clear and and whatnot and and the meanings of words being clear like we can have a satisfactory conversation to the extent that we both assign the same meaning, same meanings to the same words. And in an extreme example, if you speak Chinese and I speak English, none of our words match. There's a totally dissatisfactory conversation and that there is no conversation basically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, again, we, it's hard to talk about these things because we're, we're using the things that we're talking about, you know, yeah. it's kind of meta yeah. in a way. Um, 
Okay. So I, sorry to hammer on that, but I think it's so important. Pricing is so damn important. Yeah. When I talk to people about it, they're like, I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. Like it's too abstract. It's like, I just see the number in the store and I pay for it. Like, why does that, why is that a big deal? I'm like, no, like it's as big of a deal as language itself. Like is, is language important? Well, then pricing is equally important in, in my view. So, um, Anything else on that? I was going to jump ahead to page 36 and ask you guys about the paradox of tolerance. Page 30, what's on page 36? It's 36 on the Kindle version. I don't know if oh, that's it's the same. Yeah, no, that's good. That's helpful to know. So I'll read. Oh, yeah. I'll read a little excerpt here just to get us set up. You guys wrote, quote, the UFC established new incentives we're back to the UFC kind of analogy to a free market mm-hmm. for ideas. The UFC established new incentives to discover, preserve, and protect. Sorry, lawnmower outside. And protect truth in a combative but respectful way. Even though its fights are violent affairs, it convinces through nonviolent means. It appeals to reason. Unfortunately, until recently in human history, non-coercive means of convincing others were necessarily social. And as such, they suffered from Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, where the tolerance of intolerance leads to rule of the latter. In a society of pacifists, the lone dissenter becomes the king, unquote. So I wanted to understand that a little more it's actually the first i've heard of the paradox of tolerance and um we we mentioned earlier how coercion is obviously destructive to price discovery so if we tolerate intolerance does that mean um we're being tolerant of people being coercive or violent perhaps and is is that the paradox and and then the follow-on question to that is like, well, how does Bitcoin actually fit into this equation of of coercion or violence in in social affairs? I, I there needs to be a price paid or cause borne by whoever decides to lie or mm. whoever tries to manipulate. And you can think of this as let's not even be uh, let's not even put it. Uh, a value judgment on this. Think of someone investing or doing an arbitrage in the marketplace and they're simply wrong. Well, the result is that they financially suffer from being wrong. And if you have a system where you can't have a, uh, oh, no, 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 but I will just change the rules and I won't get hurt anyways, which is what the government can do when it can just, oh, well, I will suspend the laws of economic reality for just an instant to benefit my situation. And then whoop, laws resumed for everyone else. As long as you can't have that, anyone who enters the marketplace and is either willingly or inadvertently lying, as in being wrong, suffers. If that happens, you have a mechanism to correct, um, to correct these things. <laughs> did you want me to add? <laughs> i don't know just <laughs> it's a discussion <laughs> um what came to mind for me there this is the 
the Carl Schmidt quote, right? Sovereign is he who decides the exception. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. If, if there's no right, like the Bitcoin, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's, that's, it's, no one is sovereign. Or exactly. everyone is. Whichever you prefer. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird again, Bitcoin's paradoxical like this, right? It's nobody controls Bitcoin, mm, exactly. but everybody controls Bitcoin, sort of thing. And it's um just that idea of having what well, what's the ideal in the West, right? That we're all equal in the eyes of the law, right? That's the ideal, at least. There's no there's no two tier system like rules for me, not for thee, although we do have that. <laughs> the, the ideal was not to have that. And with Bitcoin, it seems like we actually have something that is more true to that ideal, that we are all equal in the eyes of Bitcoin. And so what is that? I mean, because this is, I think, is a very, I mean, this started for me with the sovereign individual, like talking about, which we've talked a lot about, Alan, you know, the economics of violence or force or whatever term you want to use here seems to be very essential to how humans organize themselves into social groups or societies. What is Bitcoin doing to that calculus? Like, what is it, how is it changing it? And then how do you expect to see, you know, capitalism or human social organization change as a result of the introduction of Bitcoin? I know that's a huge question. So you can yeah. take any direction <laughs> I'll, I'll you want. I'll the first one first, because I think it's a bit simpler. And then the second one, we can spend a few hours on maybe. Um, maybe this is what you were expecting me to jump in because I think it actually follows very nicely from from what Sasha said last that um, with fiat as it exists today we've sort of reached the end of a progression of lowering the cost to lying and manipulating uh, at least in the realm of money, maybe not in absolutely everything. Um, but then you would argue there are, there are downstream consequences for almost everything. But in terms of, therefore, what are the economics of controlling the process of money creation? There's, there's basically no cost too great because you can always pay yourself back. That's the point we've reached. And... I think it's worth emphasizing that we're not saying that either on a Bitcoin standard or at any mythical point in the past on, on a gold standard or on a whatever standard, you know, it's been impossible to lie or it's been impossible to, to cheat or manipulate or whatever. Uh, the question is, what are the relative costs? And so the, the potential of Bitcoin from this point is to return a serious cost to attempting to interfere with social consensus in in this way uh, and the hope I mean, this will lead into the next question i don't think there's any simple way of answering it the hope is that the returns calculus shifts so much that violence is just not as attractive anymore that if you're if you're willing to invest a certain amount or, or spend let's say it doesn't even need to be you know explicitly in like a financial context if you're willing to expend money time effort you may as well do it creatively and 
peacefully and cooperatively because the alternative of doing it politically violently is nowhere near as appealing as it used to be as, as it is today mm -hmm. yeah so would you say then that i mean at the risk of oversimplifying people tend to do whatever is profitable. I know profit is technically a psychological phenomenon, not a financial phenomenon, but let's just say financial profit to be more specific. If something is financially profitable, people tend to do it. Someone tends to do the thing almost irrespective of its moral mm. content or its morality. And so with Bitcoin, we're saying it just makes these uh, typically considered immoral acts, right? Stealing, killing, coercing, makes them less profitable. So we would expect in the larger scheme of human action patterns over time, as Bitcoin monetizes, that we would see less of that immoral and again, I'm I'm using a moral to capture like killing, stealing, coercing in a nutshell. You might find that to be moral. I don't know. Most people don't. Um, we would expect to see less of that in a Bitcoinized world mm -hmm. just because of the the shift in the the profitability. Yeah, I, I think I'd say two things to this, and I'm I'm pretty sure Sasha will want to jump in afterwards. I feel like I'm gonna tee you up very nicely with this. So one would be that just to be careful that when you talk about you know, the, the cost or the, maybe the, as you said, the profit or the return even of a violent act, um, especially in general, like across a population, mm -hmm. uh, to not talk about it in absolute terms, only in relative terms. Cause I think it mm -hmm. kind of quickly becomes nonsensical if you're saying, you know, there will be X much mm -hmm. violence, murder, theft, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm completely comfortable in, in relative terms, uh, agreeing with you that yes, if, if some, violent act is more profitable uh in you know scenario a than scenario b then it is more likely in scenario a mm -hmm. people will do it than it would be in scenario b i don't think that's really that that controversial it's just kind of obvious where i think it's a bit more complicated though is that there are obviously motivations other than the financial so you would hope that even if you're in scenario a where it is quite profitable to to be violent and you could come up with an example that really easily not just saying like we could go steal one of those cars that, that are just outside like that would, would probably be pretty profitable we're we're, we're not going to do it um at least not on camera um <laughs> but um yeah we're we're not going to do it and, and more importantly nobody is going to do it because of the the wider uh i think it's fair to say social capital that goes into preventing that and so i think where it gets really interesting is when you imagine how these evolve uh, with respect to one another over time. And I think the really sad thing that is becoming more of, I guess, a topic of, of interest and discussion, but but quite well thought through discussion, I think, in, in Bitcoin circles, that I don't think people were really talking about this maybe five or more years ago, or if they were, they were as... There weren't as obvious examples and, and well-explained examples as, as there are now. Um, is that the the more the, the the longer a period of time, again, this is coming back as well, 
the, the longer period of time in which there is a relatively higher payoff to violence in financial terms and explicitly financial terms, I think it, it's pretty reasonable to assume the more the social capital preventing it is going to be corrupted mm-hmm. and it will uh, decay. Let's say it'll, it will dwindle in its ability to prevent the, uh, the, the incentive towards a financial payoff, mm. which will probably become reflexive in that, therefore, the financial payoff will become greater. And there's obviously more inputs than just that. There's not like two variables in the system. Mm. And again, you can't measure this. I don't, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding that, that mm. you know, this can be uh, modeled, let's say, in absolute terms. But I think in relative terms, those dynamics are, are pretty easy to understand. And so actually... Uh, hopefully I've now teed up Sasha. I feel like this is getting into where, where you do really enjoy talking about. Uh, but to tie it back to Bitcoin, I actually think the hope is more in the second category. I think it's that, okay, yes, it reduce, it gets us from scenario A to scenario B, right? It, it reduces the immediate payoff uh, that it potentially exists as an incentive to violence. But more importantly, doing that for long enough reinforces social capital and maybe here's a, actually a, a, a link that goes right back to what we were talking about at the start that the social capital is the stock right this and the stock is what you care about the the transiently violent acts not to dismiss them not like oh that's fine it doesn't matter but i i really don't think it's as important it's it's not it's not as worth aiming to eradicate this maybe even a better way of putting it right if you're if you're faced with again scenario a where it's very, you get a really good return on violence. Mm. I think it's probably a better long-term strategy to address not, you know, that cost calculus, but rather the social capital that ought to prevent it, regardless of how high the returns are. Mm. And so that's, that I think is a real hope for Bitcoin. I mean, that that's a, an incredibly long-term project that could take centuries for all we know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the, the relative dynamics, I think, aren't too difficult to appreciate, aren't too controversial, and are worth caring about and striving for. I was going to say one phrase that came to mind was, show me an incentive and I'll show you an outcome. Mm-hmm. And if we accept that the incentives under a Bitcoin standard are less corrupt than under a fiat standard. And I'm using relative rather than absolute comparison here because nobody knows what the ultimate system looks like. Then yes, we should expect better outcomes, right? And we have talked about how capital accumulates faster and to a greater extent in environments that have the right set of incentives like an octagon in MMA, like a free marketplace of ideas or free market. So if we roll forward in time, could be hundreds of years and we have this being trenched in society, yeah, we should expect to see the ramifications be incredibly wide and broad, partly as well because of that point of reflexivity that you were making Mm. we do see throughout history the corruption of regimes 
going hand in hand with the corruption of currency or the mm -hmm. corruption of money mm -hmm. and how through periods of decline, you suddenly start debasing your currency. Mm -hmm. You're removing the metal content that's of value and you're adding junk in there. And that's just feeds on itself because you're adding lies on top of lies and the, the bad money is driving out the good. And so at some point you're getting in a situation, even day to day, the incentive for you on the ground as a, mm -hmm. someone living in that environment is to start also lying or to start taking crazy actions that are to no one's benefit, but you're almost just safeguarding your own um, quality of life. And it becomes really difficult to operate in that environment. So, if we see it in one direction, we've definitely seen the deterioration of money. Like under any environment where money dies, any country where you have mass inflation, you see what drastic or horrible consequences it leaves on the social side, the cultural side, all these things. You can just imagine the other tangent of the, so the other side of that, which would be a positive one. So that's yeah. how I think about it. But what it looks like, how long it takes, like all those things are, impossible to say and it's it's all somewhat speculative but based on some good reasoning yeah it's and it sort of begs this question for me is like what is this link between social morality and technology right because well, what are we saying here the, the more quickly you debase the currency you're kind of accelerating this social deterioration or decivilization in a way mm. and maybe it's not maybe that's technology is too broad maybe like maybe it's more about incentives specifically like financial incentives or, or money um but it i end up in this place thinking where the morality is kind of emergent from the technological or incentive reality in a way and that might be too deterministic um, I've said something before, like people's characters are emergent properties of the incentive systems they're set within. Yeah, you know. no, I, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think there's a very nice way of, of communicating it such that it's, it's clearly not deterministic, but it's essentially making the same point as you. There is a quote in there. Um, I believe in chapter eight, you may be trying to find it if you remember the one. Um, I don't think I'd be able to find it quickly enough though. Um, but to the effect that um, if people are desperate, they, they just will be selfish, right? And so the link to the, the, the point about being overly deterministic, I don't think you... I don't think me expressing that needs at all to be understood again as as kind of denying free will or anything like that. But but equally on a relative basis, it seems obviously true, right? If you are more desperate, if you are more impoverished, if you are more unable to meaningfully consider the long term, you're you're just increasingly going to have to only care about yourself and the present right. and that doesn't i don't think that's a deterministic argument at all i think it's just an obvious observation of, of human nature which has terrible consequences for uh for capital allocation basically that's you know if if, right. if everybody is in that position uh or if people are increasingly becoming in that position the 
the element going back to the conversation we had quite a while ago now, but the, you know, the, the necessary element of the drive to build and the creativity and maybe even more, maybe this is the link to morality, right? The, the desire to, um, how best to put it, um, the desire to care beyond yourself such that you are motivated by satisfying others, right? Not purely altruistically, but in terms of what is actually driving you to create economically in the first place, uh, that simply will diminish. I, I don't, again, I don't think that's deterministic. I think mm -hmm. it's quite straightforward as, as, you know, an understanding about how people are likely to behave socially in, in those kinds of conditions. Yeah. I think it's really well said. And, um, there's a number of quotes that come here to mind. Um, one I think was Ferdinand Lips. He said something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, the monetary standard and the moral standard are inexorably linked and therefore it determines the fate of humanity, right? That when you're debasing the money, you're actually debasing the moral mm -hmm. composition, mm -hmm. I guess, of society. Uh, Ayn Rand said something to the effect that money is the barometer of man's virtue, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't know if... <laughs> I guess because money is such an important technology that it has these kind of pervasive influences on us as we, we debase it and change it. Um, okay. One last big question on this topic. Um, because we said, you know, obviously at the end of this chapter, even you guys, like we're talking about economics of violence and you're saying the last line in short, Bitcoin fixes this and long the remainder of this book. Right. So you're describing how Bitcoin fixes. I mean, maybe this is one of the most essential problems in human social organization, if not the essential problems like, well, how do we create the most stuff, which is to say, you know, maximize the standard of living for the most people, but do it in a way that keeps us from stealing each other's stuff or reducing the temptation to steal each other's stuff, which actually undermines the first objective. Cause if you steal people's stuff, then you're disincentivizing productivity. So it's like, uh, I don't know, kind of a chicken and an egg type problem. Okay. The question for that I have is at the end of human action, which is Mises big master work, he makes this point that technologies tend to succeed or fail in the marketplace based on their merits, right? So, a, a, and I think he's mostly referring to like physical tools and technologies. So mm -hmm. the best shovel, right, in terms of whatever uh, type of hole it's trying to dig or its cheapness or its durability, whatever the things are that make a, a shovel good, that the shovel that best satisfies those wants at that price point will sort of tend to outcompete and win in the marketplace. But he says when it comes to ideologies, it's not necessarily the same that people can be sold false ideologies, right? Like communism, socialism, et cetera, that these are ideas that are, you know, demonstrably bad, not only, you know, in theory, as a lot of Mises's work has done to debunk socialism, but then we also have the empirical evidence of 
socialism uh, being implemented in the 20th century and whatnot. He says ideologies, they don't compete or fail based on their own merits so much as they do, uh, you know, the rhetoric of their proponents. You know, people can like really sell these things. They can promote these ideas and get people to buy into them whether or not they work now maybe in the distant long run when we get a lot of experience saying oh we've seen socialism fail 50 times like that shit doesn't work you can't sell it to me anymore maybe maybe the ideology does start to fall more into the technology camp in that way over time but i think his argument is in the in the short run you can sell people false ideologies it's a lot harder to sell them a false tool right if the tool doesn't do the job well that people are going to figure that out pretty quickly so sorry long introduction to this question which one is Bitcoin? <laughs> Bitcoin's obviously a tool and a technology, mm-hmm. but it also has this ideological component because mm-hmm. it's money. How, like, what, what causes it to see? Does it does it just need to be useful, or do we actually need to uh, evangelize or proselytize yeah. or sell mm-hmm. or promote this idea as well for mm-hmm. it to succeed? So I think it is definitely a tool and it's definitely not an ideology. Um, I can go more into why it's not an ideology if you like. I think that's actually an interestingly separate discussion. I I have repeatedly gotten to arguments about whether or not Bitcoin is political and with me saying it it isn't. Mm. Um, But I think it's a natural question to ask and that it invites a natural confusion because implementing bitcoin refutes many ideologies it's Mm. it is impossible to at least intellectually coherently i mean i'm sure people will still say these things and think these things but it it should to an intellectually honest observer adequately debunk an enormous number of ideologies if you witness bitcoin in the wild Would you say the same about capitalism then? Is capitalism an ideology? Uh, I think that's kind of a thorny issue. Um, It honestly strikes me as a bit of a loaded question, not so much on your part, Robert, but just in thinking about how different people could interpret it. Um, We would probably say it isn't. It's, It's more of a legal system. Mm-hmm. but I think where it's tricky is that you know you ask 10 different people what they mean by capitalism you'll get at least 10 different answers so that, that's kind of why I'm hesitating there it's an ideology in the sense that it tries to coherently explain how things work but it also is a tool in that it emerged through experimentation and that we realized this setup is quite good. Mm. And then you try and add a bit of, okay, but could you say more about that? What are its characteristics? Yeah. How did, and then, because capitalism predates the word capitalism. So in that sense, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. you, you know, but and pretty much any ism does that. So it, you could almost always say that it's, it starts as a tool. It ends up as a ideology or, yeah, so. Hmm. Yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> uh, tricky. Okay, well, just to make it slightly more tricky, where, where do we where do we draw the line then between ideology and technology? 
because I think of things like social technologies, right? We've talked about language a lot today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The calendar, right? It's like, it's not a thing. It's just something, a belief system or whatever we all buy into to coordinate yeah. ourselves across time and space. Where do we draw, how do we distinguish between the two ideologies and technologies? I think the calendar is a really good one because if you think about it, it requires that everybody agree that it's useful for it to be useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I like that. I've never thought about that. And there's before, a ton yeah. of utility in all of us agree. It's back to language. The calendar is just a, it's just a language. I was actually going to use, which is, I, I was almost going to use computer code or sort of computer language as a, as a, or like a protocol as in it's, mm-hmm. We agree that this is a, hey, I've set up and uh, I've established the standards for an interaction, but then people need to start building on this for it to be of use in a mm-hmm. way, because otherwise it's just, it's just this hypothetical and it's, mm-hmm. and it's kind of there. So it, it does definitely require the, one of the great things about Bitcoin is because it's a network effect, it becomes more valuable, the more people adopt it. And so in that sense, that increase in value comes from the greater adoption and the greater use and all of the things that are built on top of it. Just the fact that when you say how much is a Bitcoin, people will usually mention the price in whatever fiat mm-hmm. they're used to computing in rather than saying, well, it's, it's one Bitcoin. <laughs> so, but seriously, yeah, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. fact that that's what you say, because if I ask you, what is, what is the day today? You're going to give me the day in the calendar. You're not going to give it to me in whatever other metric thing you're using because we've mm-hmm. all agreed that we're now we're now switched. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it will take a while for us to change everything that we're like. It basically requires some level of coordination, mm-hmm. which initially is quite difficult, and it's a small scale. Eventually, takes over a bigger uh, chunk of the population, and you get a tipping point. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That, that, that touches on something I've thought about before as well, that um, although it's obviously perfectly natural for people to refer to the, you know, the, the price of Bitcoin in usually in dollars, but occasionally in whatever their local currency is. Um, that's, I guess that's, you know, that's fine in the moment if you don't have any other point of reference, but I get a little irked when people say things like, or ask things like, you know, what price will it have to be to have achieved X, right? Or, mm-hmm. or what price will it be, but so far in the future that it's kind of implied or, or inadvertently revealed and in even asking the question that they, they don't really understand Bitcoin because at, th- at that point, that far in the future, it will either be zero or it won't make any sense to say it as a price. Like there's mm-hmm. no, there's not really any in between left at that point. Um, so, I mean, I don't even know what the alternative is probably something like, uh, share of total currency value or something like that. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it is interesting to think about that as long as you're still quoting it in dollars, you know, there's a long way to go. Right. Well, so could we then say that the difference between ideology and technology is that ideology requires some agreement or consensus? to be useful whereas a technology does not necessarily yeah maybe like, yeah like the shovel yeah. that 
is going to work. It doesn't matter if people believe in it or not. Like this thing yeah. either digs more holes <laughs> per hour than this one, or it doesn't. I was going to say the shovel, you need holism in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> no, you need to be a shovelist. No, but seriously, you need to believe that there's value in digging a hole right. for, that, for that shovel to do. <laughs> That's good, actually, yeah. I, I think it's the same here. It's the Bitcoin is, it, it's a technology. And for that technology to be valuable and to be useful, you need to believe in the outcome that it will yield being good. You need to believe that, yes, I mm -hmm. do want a hole. Therefore, I get a shovel. Yes, I do want a place where I can't corrupt the price uh, mechanism. I can't, it, nobody's in control of the currency, all of these attributes. And therefore, Bitcoin is the answer to that problem. And that it's a technology, but it requires us to have a view that that's a value. And we're back to that point of subjective objective, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting too, because I guess at the individual level, it's not like people are buying Bitcoin thinking, all right, we're going to solve price discovery and get capital allocated <laughs> properly. Like people are just trying to preserve purchasing power across time or even speculate on future price appreciation or purchasing power growth, whatever you want to call it. But the emergent fix of Bitcoin to succeed in that way by individuals adopting it for that reason is this big fix like that that you talk about again in your essay um 20 capital in the 21st century it's like that's an interesting way to think about it people are adopting it because they want to you know dig dig little proverbial holes but then the what do we build as a result of that is some brand new i don't know giant chasm of cap proper capital pricing something like that mm -hmm. Well, guys, we uh, we made it through chapter one. <laughs> so, Excellent. With a, with a lot of uh, a lot of tangents and sidetracks, but all really fun. Yeah, um, things, but <laughs> <laughs> things to write about and reflect on for a future. Um, we'll do this again, and we'll focus on. We're obviously going to obviously not going to get through every chapter in the book, but we'll go into some other uh, really interesting parts. I think you mentioned chapters seven and eight, my, having some things um, that were specific to capital and capitalism that resonated with a lot of people. So maybe we'll try to focus on that. Um, thank you for doing this. Where can people find you guys on the internet? Uh, for me, probably just Twitter is the best place. So it's uh, A-L-L-E-N-F-3-2. I don't know what my handle is, which I think is <laughs> tell you everything about Sasha underscore Myers. I'm yeah, sure that's what yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Sasha <laughs> underscore Myers, and I very rarely tweet or do anything on social. So I think yeah. just follow Alan. Alan. <laughs> <laughs> we will figure out your handle, and we'll link to both of them in the show notes. <laughs> um, guys, thanks again for doing this. It's a super fascinating conversation, and the book again is. Bitcoin is Venice, Essays on the Past and Future of Capitalism, I think is the subtitle. Uh, we'll also link to that in the show notes. And I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, guys.